Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. This is a special year of celebration for the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, passed by Congress on June 4, 1919, and ratified on August 18, 1920. The 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote. Today, we'll begin a series of podcast interviews, which will air over the next several weeks on the passage of the 19th Amendment, the importance of the amendment to Kentucky, and, of course, to the nation. Our guest on the podcast today is Melba Porter Hay, the author of a book, Madeline McDowell Breckenridge and the Battle of the New South, the first biography of the Kentucky suffragette, activist, and philanthropist. Uh, Melba Hay worked for the Kentucky Historical Society for many years and has written many articles pertaining to historical topics and is uh, our go-to expert as we begin our series of conversations about the 19th Amendment. Ms. Hay, welcome to our program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. What is the significance of the 19th Amendment? Well, the 19th Amendment really was the thing that gave women an equal status as far as uh, government is involved with men because previously women had not been able to vote in most places, although there were a few Western states that had women's suffrage fairly early. Kentucky had had school suffrage for women in the 19th century for a short period of time. That is the right to vote in school elections if a woman had children in the school and there was no male, (laughs) widows and that sort of thing. But women were not equal politically, and it was viewed by many men that they should not be for so long. It was a real struggle for over 70 years from the time the movement began until uh, the passage of the 19th Amendment. What do those uh, arguments and what you've read about what uh, men, uh, the reasoning, the arguments that they put forth uh, to keep women uh, from this right? Well, one of the things they said was that uh, fathers and husbands looked out for their women and women did not need to vote because they were protected by their male family members. Another argument was that women were too delicate to vote. Uh, they couldn't go to the polls and be involved in with the riffraff and that sort of thing in voting. That uh, they didn't have... The women's sphere was a different sphere from men's, and they were to take care of the home and the children, and men were to take care of the politics and government. Well, so it was a struggle from uh, the beginning. So uh, for 70 years or so, when did the actual, if you can trace for us the the roots, uh, the the genesis of uh, when the activism, I'll use that word uh, lightly, When did the activism begin that uh, brought more women into uh, the the movement to uh, uh, obtain the right to vote? Well, the women's rights movement 
it, it generally is thought is said to have begun in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention in New York, uh, where Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, called together a collection of like-minded women to begin the work for not just suffrage, but women's rights in other areas as well. Co-guardianship of children, for example. Uh, men were always given the guardianship of children at that time. A lot of these women who were involved in the early part of the women's suffrage movement came out of the abolitionist movement. Eventually, there were two women's suffrage, uh, national women's suffrage organizations, the American Women's Suffrage Organization, led by Lucy Stone and a group of women in the Northeast, and the National Women's Suffrage Association, led by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Those two organizations combined in 1890, and that was the primary group that led the fight for the 19th Amendment. At that time, were there black women in those two organizations or did they migrate to the the one that uh, eventually strengthened and got the right to vote uh, by 1919, 1920? They really weren't involved. Uh, they weren't uh, allowed to be members of those organizations. Even, even the group that uh, the uh, American Women's Suffrage Association had been in favor of the 14th Amendment, which gave, uh, and 15th Amendment, uh, giving black men citizenship and the right to vote, while the uh, national group had been against that unless it included women. Were there uh reasons uh, that uh, that black women were uh, disenfranchised even by uh, suffragettes uh, for so long? Well, I think racism is an obvious reason, especially in the Deep South. And there were only four Southern states that ratified the 19th Amendment. Kentucky was one of those, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, and Arkansas. But um, there was a Southern State Suffrage Conference formed uh, by Kate Gordon of Louisiana around 1911. And Kate Gordon, uh, there are a lot of her letters in the Laura Clay papers at the University of Kentucky. She was a, an extreme racist. Uh, but, but we can't say it was just Southern women because Northern women didn't really let Black women in as well. Mary Church Terrell founded the National Association of Colored Women, and she was a, a suffragist. She um, was, this was in the teens, the 19 teens. She pushed for them to be involved with the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and they were allowed into in some of the marches and, and were able to participate, but they were supposed to stay at the back of the line. However, she wouldn't agree to that, and so she brought groups of African-American women forward in the marches. What were the, the negative uh, reverberations uh, that occurred around the time of the vote and then after the vote? What happened after the passage? Well, women are given the 
credit or discredit, whichever one you want to call it, for the election of uh, the next president. Women did not become involved the way that it had been expected that they would, and that a lot of suffragists wanted them to become involved. So out of that grew what was called the Equal Rights Amendment, which dates back to just just after the Women's Suffrage Amendment and, of course, was a big issue in the 70s. But women still didn't have complete equality with men in many ways. And, and you still see that politically. I mean, how many women do we have in our state legislature or in Congress? Women have not held public office nearly as much as men and still don't even today. We are uh, talking to uh, Melba Porter Hay, who uh, is the author of uh, a book on Madeline McDowell Breckenridge, one of Kentucky's uh, suffragettes, and we're going to uh, continue our conversation with her. But we'll uh, end this first half of our conversation, uh, Ms. Hay, uh, by maybe dispelling uh, one myth that I think a lot of people are confused about. Um, the definition of suffragette, what, what, uh, what is the, the true uh, derivation of, of the term? Well, the right to vote is called the right of suffrage. So although there uh, were many days uh, of probably pain and, and, and mental anguish, uh, suffragette or suffragist does not mean suffer. It means the right to vote. Uh, we're talking to Melba Porter Hay. We're going to pause here and come back and talk to her about Madeline McDowell Breckenridge. Spalding University's affordable, nationally distinguished low-residency MFA in writing offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration, explore across genres, and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. All right, Miss Hay, you, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the author of the the book about uh, one of Kentucky's uh, uh, better known, not the only one, of course, uh, suffrage well, let me just ask you, that, that's a good place to start since we ended up with the definitions of uh, suffragette and, and suffrage, uh, suffragist. Uh, which one was she? She was a suffragist. Uh, she was a member of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. At one point, she was a vice president in that. And the Kentucky Equal Rights Association was actually begun by Laura Clay in 1888, And uh, Laura Clay was the head of it until 1912 when Madeline McDowell Breckenridge became the president. Ms. Hay, can you give us sort of a a lineage of, uh, we recognize some of those names, certainly the Clay name. Tell us uh, a little bit more about those two women. Well, Laura Clay was, uh, of course, the daughter of Cassius Marcellus Clay, and she became a suffragist and woman's rights advocate, primarily because of the problems she saw when her parents divorced and uh, the disabilities legally that her mother endured 
property-wise and in guardianship of the younger children and uh, those kinds of things. Laura's mother and all the sisters, they wanted legislation that would protect women. And men were not going to give them that. Women had to have the vote for that. When did uh, Laura Clay and uh, Madeline McDowell Breckenridge uh, become acquainted and how are they uh, related? How did they begin to work on the movement uh, together? Well, they were distant cousins, very distant, because Madeline McDowell Breckenridge was the uh, granddaughter of Henry Clay, and she grew up at Ashland, the Henry Clay estate. So she was very... uh, probably always knew each other. The leading families of Kentucky in those days all knew each other and married each other and <laughs> were, in, were involved uh, socially and in every other way. So tell us about uh, your biography of her um, and uh, trace her activism from the time that she was uh, a young person all the way up to the time she took over Uh, from Laura Clay in 1912? Well, she became an advocate for people who were disadvantaged in her early, in her mid-20s. She experienced something that I think propelled her into being concerned for people who, who were disadvantaged in some way. It could be poverty, it could be in some other way. And that was the fact that she had tuberculosis of the bone and had to have her foot amputated when she was uh, 25 years old. So uh, she was one of the founders of the Lexington Civic League, which advocated all kinds of improvements and reforms. She was involved in Associated Charities, which was the precursor of the United Way. So she was... She was very concerned about all these, and she ultimately decided that she would never get any of this enacted into law unless women had the right to vote. So that's what propelled her into the woman suffrage movement. And she was the primary leader in school suffrage for women. Women had lost the right to vote in school elections. And in 1906, She was the legislative chair for the uh, Federation of Women's Clubs and the lobbyist for school suffrage, which was finally passed by the legislature in 1912. Was that just a uh, another organization uh, that was akin to the the other group that she belonged to fighting for uh, the right to vote? Uh, Did they work together or were they completely separate organizations? She used all of the different organizations she belonged to, really, to support the cause of woman suffrage. She got the Lexington Civic League to bring in speakers for suffrage. She used all of those different avenues, and the Women's Club particularly, to promote the cause of woman suffrage. So they were all intertwined. Tell us more about her personality and what you learned uh, that had uh, when you began your research, uh, what what she was, her personality was like, uh, how she got along with people, uh, how driven she was. Uh, was she only married the one time? Yes. Uh, you could tell us about her husband, uh, which is um, uh, an interesting story in itself and his position. So just tell us a little bit about her as she uh, grew uh, into adulthood and then began working for the cause. 
Well, she married to Shea Breckenridge, who was the editor of and owner of the Lexington Herald. So I always say when I give talks on her that if you want to promote a cause, get involved with a newspaperman because then you get all the publicity that you need. Mm-hmm. She was able to call on the Herald for articles anytime she, she wanted to write an article. Deshay was the uh, son of former Congressman W.C.P. Breckenridge. And although he had originally been against women's suffrage, she was able to convert him to the cause. And he gave a lot of support to it. You used the word driven, and she was a very driven person. I think she felt and realized that she probably was not going to have a long life to achieve what she wanted to achieve. Because of the tuberculosis? Yes. In fact, she died at the age of 48. So she was a driven person, and her papers at the Library of Congress showed that. And then papers turned up later in the attic at Ashland. And these were family papers, letters with friends, uh, love letters with Deshay, and actually several other men that I'd not known about previously. (laughs) And uh, men who were pursuing her, she was not really interested in the others. She was always only interested in Deshay. So it gave me a different perspective of her personality. And she was a much more caring lovely person, someone that you would want to know and be friends with, uh, which I hadn't really felt that originally. I'm sure there is um, uh, an obvious connection between uh, her husband's name, her her husband's first name, and uh, the road in Lexington, uh, the uh, neighborhood in Lexington. Uh, I may be wrong about this. I'll ask you to confirm this. Uh, off of Fontaine, there is a, a Deshaies, uh, and also the a restaurant uh, that was a favorite of many uh, Lexingtonians and all over Kentucky, uh, especially ball game fans. I guess uh, Deshaies was downtown for a while, so that uh, were both named after him. Well, he was a descendant of Governor Joseph Deshaies. His mother was uh, granddaughter of Governor Joseph Deshaies, so that's where he got his name. And he and uh, some of Madge's brothers, um, and I do tend to call her Madge. Uh, that that was her uh, nickname, I guess, if you will. Uh, Madeline McDowell Breckenridge uh, was known as Madge. Right. So Deshay and her brothers were the ones who actually took uh, that property that's now uh, Ashland Park and developed it. It had belonged to Madge's father, Henry Clay McDowell, and they developed that into a subdivision in the period from about 1910 to 1920. Hmm. And all of the streets there were either named for some of the McDowell's or some of the Clay's. So that's how all of that area got their names. So I don't know the the date of the death of Madeline McDowell um, uh, of Madge. Uh, did she live long enough to see the passage of the amendment? She did. Uh, She accomplished quite a few things that had been goals of hers in 1920. She, well, she was able to see Kentucky ratify the 19th Amendment in January, and she was the one who largely organized all of that, and it was done on the first day of the legislative session, which is remarkable because usually nothing passes on the first day of the session. The last time. (laughs) The first and last time, I'm sure. (laughs) And at least of anything of consequence. 
And uh, so then she was able to go to Europe and she made a tour of Europe during the summer. And she was standing on the field at Verdun, one of the great battlefields of World War I, when she got the message that Tennessee, the final state needed to ratify, it had passed there. And uh, so she was exuberant about that. She came home and she was able to vote in the presidential election of that year. She she had campaigned hard for James Cox and the League of Nations, which was something she supported very strongly. And then she was gathering up clothes to give to the poor in November of 1920 when she had a stroke and died three days later on Thanksgiving Day. So that was that uh, she died in the year 1920. 1920. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So who were some of the other suffragists uh, in Kentucky and, and uh, outside of the uh, Lexington area? Because they really, according to the uh, Kentucky uh, suffrage project map, they're all over uh, Kentucky. And you're taxing my memory now because it's been a long time since I've read those papers. But there were more, there were more uh, leaders in Kentucky, of course. Um, Cora Wilson Stewart, the founder of the schools in eastern, some of the schools in eastern Kentucky, Linda Neville, the, the founder of the Tacoma Hospital, um, Josephine Henry in Versailles was a, a leading suffragist at one point in her career. Uh, there were suffragists, I know, in Bowling Green and Louisville. There weren't many in the rural areas of Kentucky. Of the, the leaders of the Kentucky Civil Rights Association, uh, there was only Laura Clay Madge from 1912 to 1915, then Elise Smith, who was a niece of Laura Clay's, and uh, Christine Bradley South, who was a cousin of Governor Edwin Mara, who was the one who signed the Kentucky ratification. Uh, Ms. Hay, what does uh, the struggle for suffrage look like today? You hinted a few minutes ago in our conversation that the struggle continues in a number of areas of uh, continued disenfranchisement for for women and, and minorities, people of color. Um, what, what in your uh, estimation, post-passage of the amendment, does the, the movement and the, the right to vote look like? Well, I think it, it was a very important accomplishment, but it didn't solve all of our problems of equality. We still see that it's much harder for a woman to get elected to public office than it is for a man. We still see uh, that women are much fewer at the higher levels of business. So women still haven't reached some of the levels of, we've had one female governor, for example, and two female uh, lieutenant governors. We haven't had a female uh, senator from Kentucky. And that's true of most of the South and, and a lot of the rest of the country as well. There's not equal pay for equal work in many instances. The professions that are generally associated with women are lower paid positions, but very important. Teachers, for example, in elementary and high school are generally women. Nurses have generally been women. And although we see more and more men and getting into those professions, they still haven't reached the level of salary. Well, 
Let me go one more for you, and we won't talk about this, but I'll just ask you and, and our listeners to think about our colleges and universities uh, in the state of Kentucky and how many women presidents we have uh, at the present time. Of course, those aren't elected positions per se, are they? <laughs> well, in a way they are, but... <laughs> yes, they are. They are in a way. They cer- certainly are. Um, a board of uh, trustees probably makes the final vote on that. So there is a vote taken. Well, Melba Porter, hey, uh, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation. Uh, It really uh, adds so much to uh, the history of what we're celebrating uh, across the nation and how important uh, Kentucky was in uh, putting those um, active steps together in order to pass it uh, uh, here in Kentucky as well as across the nation. So we appreciate you joining us on Think Humanities. And uh, if you uh, find any more of, of Madge's papers in the attic at Henry Clay at some point in time, uh, please let us know. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.